This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 19 in the Old Testament. And we see that David wins the battle. He wins the battle against Absalom, but it looks like he's losing the war. And I'll explain that. In this chapter we'll see what looks like the decline of the Davidic dynasty. Now we know that God promised that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So not in a celestial sense, a spiritual sense, but in a earthly or temporal sense. Uh, it doesn't appear that we, we don't read the former chapters of David seeking the Lord, going to the priests, you know, constant communing with the Lord. Um, so it, this is important as we start to look at the decisions he makes in this chapter. Uh, there's a civil strife that's brewing, and we'll look at that at the end of the chapter. David retakes the throne, but the, the glory days of old are kind of gone by. And the waning years are marked by famine, plague, and another coup, yet another coup um, that's, in the, that's in the works with David's son trying to take over again. So in 2 Samuel 19, we're going to start with verse 1. And it says, And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city, or they went by stealth that day, as the people were ashamed to steal away when they flee in battle. This is interesting. This should have been a great victory. But there's one problem. The forces that, that defeated the enemy king, sadly enough, the enemy king was the rightful king's son. So it's an awkward situation. David's taking it very hard, and the soldiers are almost ashamed. Instead of rejoicing as victors, they're quietly going back into the city because I guess word is getting out that David is just completely broken up that his son was killed. Um, in, in a sense, they were like, hey, we're the good guys. Instead of a sense of accomplishment, they had a sense of shame. It's a, this whole chapter is unusual. So, you know, I'm certainly open to emails and questions. And, you know, if, if I didn't explain something completely, we can talk about that after service. It, again, it's a very unusual portion here in, in this situation. In verse 4, But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O oh, my son, Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters. Remember, he had other children still that were saved by the soldiers. The lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines. And that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. That's a harsh statement. Remember, he's speaking to the king. A little insolently, he could have had a little bit more compassion. Um, he was right, but a lot of times we can be right and, and then wrong in the way we say things. Uh, Joab was a mixed bag. Uh, he happens to be right in, in truth, uh, but, you know, there's other things going on in Joab's life. And Joab is the one who caused all this, remember. He found Absalom alone. The king ordered not for him not to be killed. 
and he and his men kill him and, and try to cover it up, this conspiracy. However, in an ironic way, it was better that Absalom was dead because he was very charismatic, and if he was alive, then it would have given him a platform. Uh, and that really would have been problematic because there were still people probably in their heart that missed Absalom. And even though it was God's will that David was the king, you know, hey, people of God, we, we do this, right? We, we make mistakes, we make improper judgments. And maybe God wants something specifically, and because of our flesh or, or something that deceives us, we make the wrong choices. And the people made a wrong choice, the whole nation did. But you have to ask yourself, what's Joab's motive? Well, on the surface, you would say to continue the Davidic di the dynasty, which would be the right answer. However, was Joab doing it for God? Was he doing it for David? Or was he doing it for Joab? And we always have to check our motives too. We can do the right thing, say the right thing, and it's not something anybody can point to in our lives, but our motives are wrong. The Bible says that as men are deceived from the outward appearance, God's not. He looks right into the heart, and he can make a determination because he sees our motives. But it was true. If David was to continue to carry on the way he did, his soldiers would have left, and probably the uh, civil strife that was brewing would have hit, hit critical mass and caused a bloody civil war. Joab is the kind of guy that gives correct advice, but with the wrong motives. And, and we saw that with Ahithophel too, didn't we? He was gifted with wisdom. And he used it initially for good with, with David. And then he went and he uh, opposed David. And, uh, you know, he used his, his advice, of course, for evil. And this is kind of sad because there are some that focus on the wrong things and the wrong people. Absalom was, he was a liar. He was deceitful. He was ungodly. He was bloodthirsty, but what does the Bible say? He stole the hearts of the nation. And these were supposed to be spiritual people. Unfortunately, today, people do the same thing. They focus on the wrong people and the wrong cause, uh, and they're not in God's will. Maybe based on charisma, popularity, or some other shallow trait that easily deceives us. So David eventually puts all his self-interest aside. He eventually does the right thing, and he goes out and he greets the people, as we'll, as we'll see. And in leadership, regardless of whether it's ecclesiastic, military, or whatever, uh, leadership comes with a price. It comes with sacrifice. Uh, David, it was okay to be emotional, but his, his over-emotionalism, if it continued, could have hurt his, his standing as the king and could have hurt the people. Verse 8. Then the king rose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king. For every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Again, David had to pick himself up. His grieving, unfortunately, as the leader, had a time limit on it. There's a lot of people today who want the authority, who want the leadership, but they don't want to put in the sacrifice. And there are some that get so used to being pampered as leaders that they train those under them to take care of them. And that becomes a parasitic leadership, which is in direct opposition to what Jesus taught when he spoke about servant leaders. A leader never gets to a point where he doesn't have to serve anymore. So Joab, again, I believe this as well. Uh, he doesn't want David to appear weak. Here's another issue here. Number one, be grateful to the soldiers. Number two, if this stuff gets around, that you're totally broken up about this, they're going to question your ability to lead. And that's, that's an issue too. Weak leadership is problematic as well. Number one, weak leadership will always cause a vacu vacuum that bad people waiting in the wings will 
be ready to kind of um, fill that vacuum. Weak leadership also often leads to compromise to attenuate the pressure, to take the path of least resistance. I mean, I'm going to come back to that. And I have to tell you, wearing both of my hats, um, I've felt that pressure. The pressure is you feel the overwhelming pressure from all sides, and you're tempted to compromise. You're tempted to take the easy way out, but you've got to stand firm. Any leader, and the higher we go in leadership, the more that pressure comes and the more we have to stand firm and do the right thing instead. We're going to see some of David's decisions might have been based on politics and might have been based on weakness, and I'll go through that. Verse 9. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the, the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king. This is awkward. It's a very awkward period. You know, David ran from uh, Absalom. David was cornered, had no choice. His men had to fight Absalom, and then he became victorious, and he hasn't been reunited with his throne. Again, it's an, just put, I always love to say this. Put yourself in that position. Put yourself in the position as the leaders, as the children of Israel, as the tribesmen, the leaders of each tribe. It's weird. It's an awkward situation. David's not on the throne. Absalom's dead. We, we chose his son over him, and we kind of got egg on our face because Absalom's now dead, and now David's not on his throne. So they were discussing how to reunite David back to his throne, kind of like a processional or official ceremony in a sense, although he's still God's anointed. Verse 11. Then King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the words of all Israel have come to the king, even to his house. You are my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? Remember, David's from the tribe of Judah. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. Well, that's not going to go over too well, is it? If you've been following with us, this stuff is it's, it's hitting critical mass. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah just as the heart of one man so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. Then the king returned and came back to, to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite who was from Behurim, hastened and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. Not a small number. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good, now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. So David is concerned. You know, you're my, my flesh. You know, I've come from you, Judah. How come you don't seem too enthusiastic? Again, put yourself in their shoes. They probably felt weird. They turned on him. They turned against God. They elevated his son. You know, maybe they thought that he was going to be nice to them and then have them executed. What would you do in that position? So David puts out the olive branch. I'll tell you what. I'll get rid of Joab. Remember, Joab is the general who sided with David while he was on the run. 
and I'll replace Joab with Amasa as a, a token of amnesty or, or, or an olive branch. Now, Amasa was the general sent to destroy David. Now, it did work out, but the question is, just because it worked out, was it the right thing to do, or was it a political decision? Is it, is it maybe, did part of it have to do with the possibility, and some uh, Bible readers speculate that somebody filled in David uh, about what Joab did to his son? They, they, they had a full confession, so to speak, and that's speculation. And then David says, you know, enough of Joab. But we know this, that Joab, by this time, it, it tells us, I believe, in the last chapter or two, that he had ten armor bearers. He had his own entourage. He had his own elite. And when he killed Absalom, all these guys who followed him were willing to disobey the king and kill, uh, you know, they threw the darts through him. Remember when he was hanging from the tree? The, all these guys had this secret society, so to speak. Don't tell the king, but we're going to kill this guy. Right? And we do find out that later on, spoiler alert, Joab kills Amasa, uh, in addition to his many other murders. So Joab becomes power hungry, but the question is, can Amasa be trusted? I just want to say this. <laughs> David's choices are not the best. And I tell you this, I'm no one to stand in judgment of David, because I wouldn't want his position. It just was messy. But then again, we don't see anywhere in the scripture in these chapters that he really went before the Lord or sought the Lord through the priest. Doesn't, it doesn't say that, but it did say that in the beginning. There is a proverb, 14.12, that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Proverbs 14.12. That's a powerful one. Sometimes we make decisions that go right for a while, and then they come crashing down. And if you're a, a leader of a government or a monarchy, that could mean people dying. And I have to tell you that I lead a pretty challenging life, and my desire is always that God bathes my decisions in wisdom. And that's what I ask him. I even ask him before it happens, Lord, bathe my decisions in wisdom. Because I don't want to be outside of your will. I know what that means. So some would say that was weak, but I think it's just being smart. I want my decisions to be his decisions. Right? And, and especially in this position here, I think you want my decisions to be his decisions because you're sitting under me. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, you know, it, it could go pretty, pretty far south if, if you know, your leaders start to just kind of do whatever they want and they're not seeking the Lord. Not a good thing. Verse 18. It says, I'm, I'm going to read this again because Shimei comes in. Remember Shimei, and we'll talk about him. So Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord left the king in Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord, the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries of me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not know that today, for do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die, and the king swore to him. Was this an act of mercy, or was it an act of politics? And, you know, Ziba comes to him, uh, Shimei comes to, to them, and they don't come to him privately. They come with an entourage. 
So some could say there's repentance there and some could maybe see otherwise in this. Again, did he make this decision out of pressure, weakness? We're going to find this in successive sections, uh, all the people that David ran into during his exile and now that he's going back to the throne, how he deals with them, some good and some bad. Um, he makes these hard decisions. The question too is, do the, are these people really being honest with me or is this self-preservation? Are they sycophantic? They're just kind of, you know, everybody wants to be on the side of a winner. Well, David's the winner now. What the heck? You know, there's no choices. Hey, David, you're the king. I bow down to you. You know, it's, it's a hard thing. Um, is it sycophantic or is it genuine? So Shimei, remember, he cursed David when David was on the run. David was still the Lord's anointed. He was vile. He threw stones at David. And David's men wanted to kill Shimei back then, and he stopped them. And now, you know, he's not executed either. Uh, and then the question, too, is, did David really fully pardon him? Because we find out later on David's deathbed, or as he's going to die, he says to his son Solomon, who's the next in line, hey, keep your eye on that guy Shimei. So if he truly forget, forgave Shimei, would he still be asking Solomon to keep... And actually, Solomon ends up executing him because Shimei disobeys him as well. Some people never learn. Number one, they presume upon God's grace, and then they don't change. And eventually, their ways catch up with them. Right? In, in Bible times, in, in, in these types of times, it, it would happen faster than usual. But we also look around, and we see that happening as well. You know? Presume upon grace, then don't change. Our ways will catch up with us. Plenty of manipulators out there that might be remorseful, but not necessarily repentant. That's why Jesus is very clear in Luke 17, and a lot of people have trouble with this scripture. Forgive your brother 70 times 7, but he says the condition is if he repents. He can't build that on a, on a false foundation. Right? It's a very interesting whole biblical discussion with sin, forgiveness, repentance, um, and restoration. Those four things, they have to fall in line really with what the word says. Verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, remember Mephibosheth, the son of Saul came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes, a sign of mourning really, from the day the king departed until the day he came back in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Meaning when he departed because um, Absalom was taken over. And Shimei answers, My lord, O king, my servant Ziba deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. Remember, he has um, a problem with his legs and he can't walk on his own. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you set your table, your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? Mephibosheth, he comes to David. Back in chapter 16, Ziba, he, you know, he, Ziba is Mephibosheth's servant, and he goes to David while David's on the run, and he says, Ah, oh, you're, you're a guy, Mephibosheth. He threw in with your son. Pretty rotten thing to do because he made Mephibosheth look like a traitor. But Ziba deceived Mephibosheth by saddling his donkey 
saying he was going to get him already, and then Ziba rode away before he could help Mephibosheth onto the donkey. So Mephibosheth couldn't even defend himself, and he couldn't get on a donkey to follow because he needed servants to help him around because of his, his legs and his feet. So what does David do? Or what does Mephibosheth remind David? I, I was always for you, David. As a matter of fact, I didn't shave. I didn't do anything while you were gone because I was in mourning that my king was gone. But he says, David, remember the kindness you, show, you showed me. Remember 2 Samuel 9 when David went into the house of Saul after he took over from the former king. Who's left? Mephibosheth, the lame guy. He didn't kill him. He, t- he brought him to his table. He had him eat with him. He gave him all the possessions. And that's an interesting point too because David said back then, Mephibosheth, you can have it all. All of these from Saul and your, your, you know, your parents and grandparents, you can have all those possessions. Then what does he do? David goes to, or when Ziba comes and deceives David about, about Mephibosheth, David makes a rash decision and gives all of what Mephibosheth has to Ziba without even hearing his story. That was a foolish thing to do. David took the easy way out. Verse 29. So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Ziba divide the land. Now he changes his decree. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. So David uses bad judgment in taking everything from Mephibosheth. Then he uses bad judgment in splitting it 50-50. Again, another hasty decision. When Mephibosheth said to David, basically, David, I'm not asking for anything. I'm just happy to see you. I'm glad you're back. You know what? I don't want to burden you. Take everything I have and give it to Ziba. I'm just so happy you're with us. That must have cut David like a sword when he heard that. Here's a guy who's deceived. He's a disabled person in those times. Everything's taken from him. And all he cares about, he doesn't want anything from David. He's just happy David's back. You ever, you ever make a bad decision and you hurt somebody and they kind of call you on that? Listen, it's happened to me. And, and I know that feeling. It feels literally like a sword going through your heart. You're like, oh, if I could go back in time and change that decision. You know, I, I hurt that person. You're not hurt, but you know that you hurt somebody else. So, you know, again, David's, these, these things are piling up on him, unfortunately. I remember, well, I remember like I was there. I like saying that. I remember in the scripture when Solomon, remember the two mothers came to Solomon and they were saying, well, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. And he says, give me the baby, we'll lift it up, and I'll, I'll cut the baby in half. He wasn't going to do it. I'll give half to you and half to, the, to you. And the one mother goes, the, the true mother, she goes, no, 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 no. Let her have the baby. She didn't want to see her child get killed. So Solomon goes, now I know whose baby it is. Here you go. He's yours. So it, it's kind of like, um, you know, you could figure this stuff out. Um, it's kind of a rash way to do things, but he, he figured it out. Now, I'll just say this as a little, a little lesson. It's often hard to balance grace and justice. See, here's the funny thing about grace and justice. You know, John here could wrong me really bad. He wouldn't do that. He's a really nice guy. But it just, it's just an example. And I may say, you know what? I forgive John. I can do that because I'm the one who's been wronged. However, if John hurts Taylor really bad and I'm the pastor or I'm the leader or I'm the king and I just say hey John suck it up and I presume upon John's forgiveness and Taylor really wronged him that's not fair 
So it's one thing if you're personally involved and you say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go because it's against me. But when there's two parties, you can't presume. That's an injustice against an innocent party. And, and you can find that in Scripture as well. As we go through these, again, it almost looks like David's got to just, he, he keeps running into these people. He's got to just make these decisions. I've got to go back to Jerusalem. There's, there's lost time. I don't know what my, my son messed up in the kingdom that I've got to fix and he's, he's hurrying kind of through these things. That's just my impression, and I could be wrong. But he is caught between a rock and a hard place, and that's all the more the reason why the Lord has to be in every decision. Because these decisions, these bad decisions start piling up, and some of these have ramifications down the road. So like I, I told you, it, you know, <laughs> before the service, I said it's going to be a rough chapter. You know, David's our hero. David's our man. David's the Lord's anointed. But David, slow down, take a breath. You don't have to make all these decisions right now. Seek the Lord's will. Verse 31. And Barzillai, the Gileadite, came down from Rogelim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me, and I will provide you, I will provide for you while you're with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I have to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today eighty years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king, and why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again. I'll go with you in this procession. But let me just go back again that I may die in my own city and be buried in the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him cross over with the Lord my king, with my lord the king, and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me. And I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan. And when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. And he returned to his own place. I love these names. <laughs> Barzillai, it sounds like he's Italian. His name ends in a vowel. No, it's not. He's not. But Barzillai, if you remember, he was the wealthy man that refreshed David when he and his, his troops and his entourage were fleeing from Absalom. And David, again, this is, what is he? The, you, had, you had Ziba, you had Shimei, you got Mephibosheth, and now you got Barzillai, a positive experience. And he says, hey, brother, why don't you come with me? Be a part of my team. Be a part of my council. You know, come to my chambers. You, you, you were just such a blessing. And, and maybe if it wasn't for you and God didn't provide you, we might have starved to death out there. But Barzillai tells him, listen, I'm old. I can't hear. I can't enjoy certain things. I don't want to be a burden to you, but how about taking Chimham? And it's believed that Chimham was his son. So that was nice. Let me give you somebody in my stead, but I just want to go back. I'm an old man. I just want to die in peace in my own city, if that's okay with you. But I'll walk across with you. Verse 40, last few verses. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half the people of Israel. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, 
Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king his household and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king, the ten northern tribes. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer or harsher than the words of the men of Israel. So you start to see this aggravation situation going on. David really tries to court Judah. Judah's probably a little reticent because of, you know, is David going to punish us for backing his son? Uh, and then the, the ten tribes, you got the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south, and now they're having this little kind of civil war going on. And there's a little bit of a jealousy, there's a little bit of a rivalry, and uh, it, it becomes problematic, and we'll find that in the next chapter. So this is the last verse we're going to cover tonight. Kind of makes you wonder if David should have fled from Absalom in the first place. Did it really stop the bloodshed? There was a war. People died. But this is what sin does. And I'll say the sin of Absalom. It causes instability and division. The country becomes divided. And uh, the blame game starts to happen now. And again, this is an awkward situation. They've got to reinstate David. And uh, nobody can even agree on how to do that. So in closing, the title is, It's Complicated, for a reason. This is very complicated. And I was saying to myself, how am I going to teach this? And you know what? Maybe some of your conclusions will be different than mine, and that's okay. Uh, But we can see at the very least that David made some quick decisions. David made some decisions that weren't wise decisions, and maybe not according to the Lord. But sin does this. It causes disorientation. It causes awkwardness, and some of them, I, I would say, we're even a little paranoid. When we're in sin, we become paranoid. We think everybody knows what we're doing, and we, we kind of face people sheepishly. That's what sin does, because that's not how we were made. We were made to be in, in regular fellowship and communion with God, not to be in sin. So, of course, it's going to be weird. When any of us are in a period of sin, even as Christians, it's weird, Right? Because we've all been there. If we've been Christians long enough, we all sin still. So David has some hard decisions to make. He's got to balance out justice, forgiveness, pardons, unity, and equity. Not an easy soup. Um, Certainly something none of us envy. On the one hand, it was a tragedy. So David wanted to pardon everyone. Although some of those decisions were made out of weakness and maybe political decisions and maybe uh, guilt. Uh, A few other things thrown into that. On the other hand... You know, some of these people did some outright evil things, and justice wasn't done. And was it the right thing to pardon all the people who did evil to especially a third party? Um, just on a side note, you ever, you ever do a study on presidential pardons? You realize that every, pretty much every one of our presidents has the power when they leave office, to, and they pardon like scores of people, sometimes upwards of close to 100. And some of these people are bad characters. Just let them, let them go. They let them out of prison or whatever. That, that's pretty messed up. I don't think the president should have the power to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of way off base here, but, you know, it's not fair to those that they've wronged, right? <laughs> so in doing the commentary, I'm doing a commentary, but I also don't want to be too harsh with David because as a police officer and a pastor, I've been in those positions. I felt the pressure, uh, and it's... It's not something that anybody envies. And sometimes 
very little grace is shown to me. However, the ones with the biggest uh, problems usually couldn't last a few minutes in my shoes. So I think we live in an age where everyone can point the finger and, and, and talk smack about others, and now we can do it behind our monitors and our keyboards and be anonymous, okay, which makes it even worse. All right? the, the, the civility is gone, lack of courage, uh, all these things factor into the mix. But when the dust clears, one thing stands out, that all of our decisions, whether David's or ours, have to be run through the Lord. We need to be in prayer. And that necessitates a serious relationship with God. The Bible says, especially, you know, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I submit to you that, that a sinner who's not saved has a, a more um, cogent life, cogent thoughts, because they're just sinning and they, they're good at it, than a born-again Christian who wavers back and forth between sin and the Lord. That's instability. Right? And I think that, again, if we've been Christians a long time, we may run into that, that wavering situation, and we've got to get out of it because it's very unstable. Uh, be careful of doing things in our own strength, relying on talent, or letting the relationship with our Lord get stale. And I pray that looking at this chapter, we can learn a lesson from David's life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.